This is Yusai. Welcome to Let's Talk, a place for open conversations. I am so excited for you to be here with me today because my guest is someone special to me. He's fabulous and always wears his signature smile with his glasses. He's none other than Eric Buterbach. Eric Buterbach's floral and fragrance brand is synonymous with a high-end luxury lifestyle. He has established himself as the most prominent florist in the world, describing his work as opulent flowers presented in a modern way. His name is no stranger to the rich and famous. Over the years, Eric Buterbach has built relationships with such icons as Elizabeth Taylor and Demi Moore, and supermodels like Kate Moss, Cindy Crawford, and Kirstie Turlington, just to name a few. I've known Eric's work for many years, but I haven't had the pleasure of meeting him until recently, when he was introduced to me by a close friend. But from the moment that we met, I was mesmerized by every word that came out of his mouth. Much like his floral work, his words were painted with colorful stories of incredible lessons and inspiring journeys. Hi, Eric. It's truly a pleasure to welcome you here on Let's Talk. Hi, Yutsai. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I've never done a podcast, so I'm very thankful to be doing my first one with you, someone who always has a smile and um, someone who makes me happy. So thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited for our talk. So let's get started. You have lived so many different lives from your childhood in Oklahoma to the fashion industry around the world. But how did you begin to take the floral world by storm? As much as I had such a great time with the fashion when I was living in um, London, I guess after the newness of being in that industry and being at the epicenter of it, really, it's when supermodels happened. It was so fun, you know, for me to be in my late 20s and waking up at the Ritz in Paris with Naomi asleep over here and Christy over there. And it was a ball as much as I was having fun and on yachts and boats and islands and having a ball. But at some point, the working part of it, the fashion world is quite a, you know, sort of bitchy, mean world. It's sort of backstabby. And for something inside of me, it just never felt good. I don't like it when people go after other people. And, and I decided I didn't want to do fashion. I loved living in Europe. So I stayed there a while, really almost till I was just completely bust. I um, needed to work. So I ended up moving back to LA to figure out what I was going to do when I grew up. I really had no idea what I was going to do. And it was frustrating. So how did you go from, I have no idea what I'm going to do and you're broke to, hey, let's do flowers. A friend of mine from London was giving a, a party at her house. And I said, oh, I'll do the flowers for you. I'd had this amazing girl do the flowers at my house in London. And whenever I gave any parties, whether it was uh, private parties or on behalf of Versace, and I'd always sort of watched her doing the flowers. And she was a real artist um, called Eva Gunderson. So I did these flowers for my friend's party in L.A. I'd never done that in my life. I went to the flower market and I put a lot of time and they were, to me, beautiful. And after the party, 
I, almost every woman that was there called her for my number and said, oh my God, these flowers are so chic. They're like something you'd see in Paris or London. And I've never seen anything like this in LA. And she knew I wasn't trying to do flowers, but she gave all these girls my number actually to take the piss out of me. These women would call and I say, oh, I don't really do flowers. No. And, and then a few were persistent. So then I did a couple of things. And every time I did one, I had fun. And every time I did something, more people called. So finally, it's almost like somebody hit me over the head with a hammer that what I was supposed to do had sort of found me. So I decided I was going to try to do flowers. So how do you go about getting started? Herb Ritz, God bless his soul, um, was my best friend in L.A. And I called him. I said, oh, we've got to take a photo. I'm going to do flowers and I need a, I want to mail out a thing to everybody. Because the thing was, I knew everybody in L.A. I knew every movie star. I knew every music star. I knew all the society ladies. I knew all the people at the studios. I knew all those people. So we did this little card and I printed it cheap and mailed it out. And I didn't have a pot to piss in then. So even my cards, cards that go with the flowers or this mailer, I met this printer with a little printing shop on Sunset. And I went in there and he realized what I was doing. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to charge you for any of this printing. You just put a flower arrangement on our counter every week and that'll be the payment for it. And literally, I put a flower arrangement on his lobby of his little business probably for 16 years every week, even after I quit using him for printing. Well, that's amazing, Eric. To remember the people that helped you along the way and support them, it's, it speaks a lot of your character. I mean, I started it in a friend's garage, and then I got a little tiny studio on Melrose and Orange Grove. And then within six months of that, I moved the, into the Four Seasons Hotel on Doheny and was there for 20 years. And then after that, I moved into the flower market. I found a space in the flower market that I love, and I wish I'd been there from day one. I love the flower market in downtown LA. There must be hundreds of vendors and floors that go through there. What made you so different and special? You know, people will always give you a go. But my motto with it was I was obsessed that if I was going to do it, I had to be the best. It had to be the best design. It had to be the best customer service. I'm old school retail. The answer has to be yes. Anything I've ever wanted to be involved with, where I have excitement is if it's the best, if it's the best quality, if it's the best design, in, in anything, I've always wanted that. And, you know, it's, there are times that things go so fast and people are trying to do stuff and it's not great quality, but they, you know, they're very successful financially or something. Never should you settle. You should always go inside and what your gut is interested in because people can understand something that's coming from a true heart because that's where I like to play. So Eric, I want to ask you about this Instagram post I saw on your page. There was this picture of you with your signature smile holding a cup, which I assume there was beer inside that cup. At a fraternity party at the University of Oklahoma? Well, thank you for bringing that up and I know exactly what picture you're talking about. 
That was, I guess I must have been 18 because it was my first year at the University of Oklahoma and it was a fraternity party. I was beta theta pi. And um, if you're judging the plaid shirt, (laughs) which it feels like you are, um, it was a fancy dress sort of cowboy theme. So it wasn't my um, usual fashionista vibe. And there was beer in that cup. Well, plasher or no plasher, you look like you were having a good time. So what did your life look like in Oklahoma? Well, you know, that was an interesting time in my life because it was my first time living away from home. And um, to be honest, when I left then, I never went back. And I was from such a small town that it felt always very inhibiting. It never felt big enough for me. So this was a baby step away. And, you know, to live in a college town, to meet new people, it was uh, a very exciting time. Also, it was the time that I was having to face my sexuality as much as I knew that I was gay. There was also some confusion in my mind with it. I was, you know, operating quite in the closet. You know, I had my little secret, but as much as I was sort of in the closet, I have all of my life, I've loved people and I love to meet new people and I'm curious about new people and I get excited. And it's somehow how I'm drawn to people. It's always someone that has a really magical spark in their eye, you know, like you have it. You know, there are just certain people have a happy deal. And if, if they have it, I don't care if they're a janitor or a movie star. If they have it, I'm drawn to that. And so I always was surrounded by friends. You know, it took me a minute to realize, actually, I'm gay. I just always had so much fun that I didn't carry, you know, any horrible weight behind it. So wait, there was never really a coming out moment for you? You didn't have a moment, awkward moment coming out to your parents or your friends? No. And I never actually had that conversation with one person in my family. My dad really disappeared. My mom, I never had it with. It just felt implied, I guess. And now, you know, looking back, I'm like, shit, there's no way any of them couldn't have known. (laughs) When I was in high school, I would... Luckily, where I grew up, it was only two or three hours to Dallas where I could race down to Neiman Marcus and get my uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier, my, at that time, Armani, there was Versace starting, Valentino was amazing. Um, And I started wearing really high fashion clothes in high school. I don't know what it is about clothes, but I, all of my life, I loved clothes. I mean... I remember I was sort of a junior in high school and I'd been down to Dallas shopping. I mean, this is in Oklahoma. I pranced into school one day and had on a black silk with a huge collar in the front, a blouse, I'll call it a blouse, from Jean-Paul Gaultier. And the back had a slit in it. The entire back was open and you could see my back. And I wore that to school and didn't bat an eye and didn't give a shit what anybody thought. I think I thought they all thought I was straight. 
in my mind, there's no way, baby. <laughs> I mean, I did like Barbies. I loved playing with my mother's high heels more than anything. And my mother really, she had amazing legs and it was during the time when there's short skirts and stuff. So she, and she was a shoe freak. I think I must've caught that disease from her because she had so many shoes. And I remember shopping with her when I was a little kid and she'd go in and we'd be somewhere and this, there was a period when the, the hot shoes were Charles Jordan. And I remember being in this shoe store with her and her saying, how many colors do you have? And I do that now. I'll find I'm a boot whore, which everyone knows. And I'll find something and it's like, how many colors do you have? <laughs> of course, I want them all just like she did. So now you're in college and you come to term with your sexuality. How did you begin to live a gay life? I was always social, loved parties and stuff. So when I was in college, I'd go out with all my straight friends. I always liked sort of, you know, going to fancy dinner and then going out to a little nightclub for a dance or whatever. I don't know how. I think somebody in my fraternity mentioned the name of a gay bar in Oklahoma City. And I didn't know that one even existed, but I did not forget the name of that. And I figured it out where it was. We didn't have Google and everything then, so you couldn't check stuff out. So I'd go out with all my friends and a lot of times we would be in Oklahoma City or something and I would tear over to the gay bar in Oklahoma City, which was called Angles. And I would go there and I was literally like a deer in the headlights. Literally, I couldn't believe this existed. But on another hand, I didn't want to get busted for sneaking out there. So I would sort of stand in the shadows and I would go over to the bar and there was one bartender who was so nice, really handsome. And I always go to him for a drink and I'd always tip big. And then after two or three months of having been there, whatever, I think this bartender realized he knew what was going on and he could sense sort of some nervousness in me. And he said, I see you in here sometime. We should have, uh, let's go have lunch one day. And he wasn't hitting on me or anything. He just knew that I needed a friend. And um, his name is Chuck. And from that day, he's been my best friend. He is still my best friend. He is arriving at my house today to visit. And it is a friend that is literally, we worship each other. I mean, it's I'm his best friend and he's my best friend. And it's been for almost, you know, it's probably been 35 years at least. We ended up becoming roommates in Oklahoma. We lived together in Dallas. We lived together in Beverly Hills. We've been best friends ever since. And it was so, it was almost like coming out because I had somebody to run around with and I made a few gay friends. And I love it that my best friend is the first queer I ever met. I thought I was the only one in Oklahoma. I also grew up in the Midwest. I can say from my personal experience, you were very fortunate and lucky to find friends that supported you. You know, it, it breaks my heart when I hear stories of people that have been physical force against them or hate talking or something like that. But it wasn't my experience. And I'm thankful for myself. It wasn't. But I hate it that it happens to other people. Who was the most influential person in your life growing up? 
My grandfather growing up was really the most important person in my life. My mother was 16 when she had me and my father was 17. Um, and believe it or not, it was on purpose. You know, they were too young. I've always been close to my mother. My father left when I was young. But what I did have was my grandfather, no matter what. He had never had any sons or grandsons. And when I was born, literally for him, it was like I was the baby Jesus. I could do no wrong. He could not say no to me. You're not here with me, but you can see over my shoulders this picture of me with my grandpa. And I am sitting there and I have on a little jacket, a Nehru collar and shorts that match. And I don't know, I must have been sort of six or seven in that photo. And I loved them then. People in the town we were from, everyone knew who he was. And my grandfather also loved clothes. So every, every single day he wore a suit and a tie and a beautiful fedora and an overcoat and kidskin gloves. And every day after school, we would walk from his office to the toy store, my idea, and the malt shop. But we would um, go there every day. And it's very obvious that I was the most special person to him. And it was recent. It was funny. Um, I was getting all dolled up to go somewhere. And immediately I thought, you know what? What makes me happier than anything are clothes. I don't know why. I love clothes. I love having new clothes. I love having fashion clothes. You know, there are times it goes in my mind, oh my God, you're getting too old to dress so fashiony, but I just can't let it go. So I'm sure I'm going to be taking that to the grave. At what point did you begin to realize that Oklahoma was just too small for you? When I was young, you know, 10, 11, whatever, I could not get enough of magazines. And at that time, that's where you saw fashion. That's where you saw a bigger world and international world. And I think because I love dressing up in clothes and so much, that always goes hand in hand with, you know, people who live a big life with black tie parties and galas and everything. And I, every month I would get town and country, I would get Vogue, I would get GQ. Much later in my life, I feel like actually I visualized myself out of there. I always knew where I grew up was too small for me. And it was funny, my grandfather had a very successful sort of company that was land title and oil rights business. And it was his dream, obviously, for me to have that. I couldn't live in Oklahoma and I knew it. I think he did too, probably. And I couldn't do that kind of work. It wasn't creative. It was, you know, treasury at an office to me. So I always visualized myself in a different world. You know, I saw myself in New York at a gala. I saw myself in London, you know, on a private plane, on a yacht, whatever. And it was just, I feel like I visualized myself quite easily to the world I wanted to live in. That was a powerful manifestation. It's funny. When I was really young, I felt like I had magic powers. It's almost like I could daydream something and it would just happen. And, it, you know, even with people, it was, you know, people I'd see that I thought were glamorous or fun or whatever. So it felt like magic to me. 
later in life, it felt more like I was visualizing and manifesting things in my life. But I knew that Oklahoma and those cows and fields uh, were not for me. But I don't, I don't regret growing up there. And the other thing is, you know, all families have fractures in them. Mine did. But I did have the, the constant and complete 100% love and support from my grandparents, both of them, but especially my grandfather. I think that gives you some courage to go out in the world when you've grown up feeling that kind of love. We all could use someone like that in our life. When I decided to move away from Oklahoma, Chuck had moved there, my bestie, to Dallas. So I decided that was an easy way for me to do that. And I had a conversation with my grandfather and telling him that I didn't want his company or or to work there or live in Oklahoma. So he had spoiled me um, with money so much growing up. To tack onto that, I wanted to have some independence. You know, there's something in your mind if somebody's taking care of you that much. I've heard people call it bread of shame when you feel like you're not earning, you know, to take care of yourself. So I also cut myself off of his money when I moved to Dallas and said I wanted to get a job and I wanted to support myself. Of course, I didn't want to let go of the clothes. So my job had to be in fashion. And I had a very quick job at Neiman Marcus because that's where I had grown up going to school. But at that time in um, Dallas, there was a store called Tory Steel Boutiques, which was sort of a collection of stores. And one of them was Versace. And that was my all-time fave that year. So I left her employee probably within six months and went to work at the Versace Boutique on, on Rodeo Drive. And really at this particular period, that is all I wanted. It's when it was, had started to explode. I know that you have a very special relationship with Gianni Versace. How does someone from Oklahoma meet a world-renowned Gianni Versace? You know, it's something when you work with something you'd love so much. Immediately going there, I was the number one salesperson. I became the men's buyer and went to Milan to buy the collections. And I met everybody in town. You know, it was an amazing baby step into a bigger world. I was in my mid-20s. I was now living in Beverly Hills. And it was funny. At that time in fashion, Versace was it. Right now, I can think of eight designers I want to wear. But at that time, it was one. And there were a lot of people. It just was changing everything. So I was working for the hottest designer in the world. And my job there, I, I sold a lot of clothes. But I also immediately was the one to take care of celebrities. So I met every movie star on the planet there because doing stuff. It wasn't owned by Johnny Versace. It was a franchise. But I got on their radar when I would go to Milan to buy the men's collections. Then eventually I met Johnny Versace at a um, party in Los Angeles. And he's like, oh, my God, you're the famous Eric. Everybody in our company talks about you. He asked me if he sent all the celebrity clothes for Oscar week to me at home, if I would take care of fitting them at their houses privately. And I said, sure. And so I would get five boxes of clothes for Elizabeth Taylor. 
and I'd take them over the house and do it. And then she became a friend or I'd get the hysterical stories with some stuff for Jane Fonda. I mean, it was just fun and it was with clothes and I loved clothes so much. So I couldn't have been happier. Johnny called and thanked me for doing that. And I didn't, I didn't even ask, I didn't want him to pay me or anything. I just did it. And so he asked me if I would come to Saint-Tropez in the summer and stay with he and Donatella. They'd rented a house in Saint-Tropez for the summer if I'd come and stay with them as a thank you for doing that. I immediately said, oh, can I bring Elton John with me? And they were over the moon with that. And when I got there, they were building their first palace store in London on Bond Street. And there wasn't a huge store like this. It was 30,000 square feet or something. And they were in the middle of construction. And he asked me to move to England and run all their operations. I said, yes, hands down. It was three steps beyond what my next step should be. But I said, yes, anyway. So now, Eric, I have to ask you, while you're in a storm of this fashionista world that you have manifested, did you ever have imposter syndrome? Did you ever question that if you belong or not? No, my mind doesn't work like that. It just seemed funny it was like the daydreaming we talked about earlier was still doing it and it just felt like the normal magic there's something i carried all my life and i don't know why or how but i really see everyone as just people and i know a lot of famous or royal or whatever but everybody has the same stuff on their plate. And I've always known that in my heart. I've never been intimidated by anyone I've ever met. Not intimidated, but it all just felt natural and as it should be. And I like people and people like me. Before I moved to Europe, I went home to visit my grandfather, who was about 103 then. And he wasn't well. And I went to say goodbye to him before I left. I think that he knew that I was going to be okay because if somebody was offering me a job and moving me to um, London, then I was okay. And he died two days later after he knew I was okay. I think he'd been hanging on a long time to make sure that that was good. Life's a journey. It just all seemed what it was supposed to happen, I think. Now you found yourself deep in the fashion industry. It's fabulous, it's glamorous, and it's fun and all the travels. It was a place that you always wanted to be. And you created space for yourself there. Then you choose to walk away from all that. What inspired that decision? What was it that enabled you to just walk away? Well, I did walk away from the fashion industry but I certainly did not walk away from fashion because still nothing makes me that happy. I think it was interesting when I started the flowers, something that that resonated with me is I had never done anything with my own hands and it was mine. So I was creating this stuff. So it fed the creativity thing inside of me. And when you hadn't done that, so for the first year I had the flower shop, I probably made every single flower arrangement. And as I started having to hire people, I couldn't let go. If so, somebody would make it, I, and me, I never want to hurt anybody's feelings. I'd let them make it. And then when they left, I'd redo it. <laughs> so it was perfect. Because I was obsessed, 
I would literally go to bed at seven or eight every night. I wouldn't go out to dinner because I have to get up and I go to the flower market like at three in the morning. I made friends with everyone at the flower market. Everybody was giving me credit. Everybody, <laughs> it was crazy, but also amazing that we had the most amazing clients, did the most amazing things. I was proud of the design. I was never very good at running a business. So that it's standing from the business side is a bloody miracle. <laughs> but it is. Somehow, some way, I survived all of it. And it's been a happy journey. You know, there's all along this. It's very nice when your work is something that makes everyone happy. Even if you're working on an event, a party, a wedding, whatever, you know, the people have been working there building stages or setting up stuff, and it's like a work site. But the very last thing to arrive is the flowers, which I always say is the icing on the cake, and that just finishes it. And for that to be my thing and for everybody to give this sigh of relief and joy when the flowers arrive, it's so nice for that to be your work. You're creating beauty. You have found your passion. You're making people smile with the work you do. What's next? Is Eric in full blossom? <laughs> no way. I'm so antsy for new. I have to do new stuff. When I made the transition from doing all the flowers and actually doing the physical work, I became more like the creative director. I set it up more like a fashion house where I was a creative director. And I'm very lucky. I have several employees that have worked for me since day one for over 20 years. And they understand what I want, which is a big, big blessing. One thing that seems so consistent to me throughout hearing your stories is that you trust the journey you're on. You do it with a smile. You are nice to everyone. You meet everyone and treat them equally. Is that the secret sauce? Gosh, no one's ever asked me anything like that, but maybe it goes back to the sparkle in the eye that when I meet somebody and I recognize that, I don't know if I've drawn that, I manifest that, but I do like people and I get excited about new things. And, you know, it's very interesting time we live in. The way the world works is much different than when I kicked the door down and fled out of Oklahoma. I always feel like I'm 25, no matter what. So I get excited about new things. I'm excited about the metaverse. I'm excited about, you know, the way people communicate now and how fast it goes. Sometimes I feel a little nervous that I'm on this fast train, but that's the world we live in now. So you have to, you know, just buckle your seatbelt in and find your place in it. So I think the flowers were meant to be, and I feel very lucky that what I was supposed to do finally found me. I'm nowhere near finished. The next phase of my life, I think it's going to be the most exciting. And I feel um, energized and excited about the future. Thank you, Eric, for sharing the stories of your ongoing journey. You have followed your passion completely and always lived authentically. Even changing directions and seeking out another path was still truly your own. I wanted to have this conversation with Eric because he's an inspiration for those who may feel the world's just too small for them. 
and need to find the courage to manifest something greater for themselves. His example of kindness and love for people is one of the key to his achievement, and his strength in developing relationships has carried his success. So many people from the LGBTQIA plus community share their circumstances, and each story speaks differently to those that hear. It's truly important for us to share our own experiences, so we can continue to inspire and celebrate our community. Thank you to all my listeners for your constant support. Please subscribe to this podcast for more open conversations. You can visit our website at letstalkwithusai.com and follow me on Instagram at usai88 for updates. Let's talk is a production of 88 Faces. I'm your host Usai, art director Louis Jaime, and writer, editor, and producer Trevor Swenjen. Thank you for this conversation. <laughs>